As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. As always, as always, bringing you heat. I came across our guest, Hyra, today on the social media streets where, I can't lie, your your threads were fire. <laughs> like, your threads were, you are shelling them down. And it piqued my interest, and I was like, you know what, I need to reach out and have him as a guest. So thank you for coming on The Malcolm Effect. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Mama Do, for inviting me. Now, absolute pleasure. So we're going to do an introduction to decolonial studies. And I say this as someone whose reading is very limited. I mean, I've been in several discussions, maybe people who are experts in Fanon, I've spoken to people like that. And what I've seen then, this is just me, someone as, a, I guess, as an outsider to the, to the field, is there seems to be like a misunderstanding or a misappropriation or a recapitulation of what decolonial studies is meant to do and what it's doing currently. So basically, if I was to ask you, what decolonial studies is or what is decolonialism what would you say it is i know it's a very big question but we're going for it yes no thank you for for asking that question there there is this sort of misunderstanding i believe of, of what decolonial studies is how it's articulated in different contexts mm-hmm. how it's uh, consumed in many ways in, in the global north so given that the topic at hand revolves around uh, decolonial theory my my discussion will obviously be highly theoretical, but I'll try to be a little bit pedagogical or as pedagogical as possible as, as I introduce key concepts, um, if you will. So it's important to consider and to preface this by saying that I speak of decolonial thought and praxis, mainly referring to a specific expression that's been given in Latin America. There are other expressions that are, that are, that are being given in, in different contexts, in Asia and Africa and so forth. But my work is, is especially informed by Aníbal Quijano, Peruvian sociologist, mm-hmm. and then the philosopher en- Enrique Dussel, and numerous Black, mestizex, indigenous, decolonial feminist scholars, such as Ochi Curiel, Maria Lugones, mm-hmm. Yuderquis, Espinosa Mioso. And I mentioned these names. Um, so for those who are listening, maybe dig in a little bit deeper in some of these scholarships, especially because... They are situated geopolitically as they think with, from, and alongside concrete social struggles, particularly Black, Indigenous, and Campesino struggles in Latin America. And I think that's one of the misunderstandings or perhaps superficial readings that has been given to decolonial studies in some of the critiques that it's received in the sense that some have accused decolonial theorists, and some of them and accurately have been, have been critiqued for being a little bit detached or uh, academicized, if you will, uh, because their mm-hmm. thinking is a little bit abstracted from these concrete struggles, which is uh, ironic because that's where this thinking and this, this way of thinking uh, emerges from. So some Latin American scholars who are situated in the global north at times tend to forget these concrete struggles. And, and that's why I draw from some of these scholarships that are mm-hmm. really situated in concrete social struggles. So they do have this sort of materiality to their discourse as well. So this really relates to the work that I've done with student movements, and that's how I collaborated with student movements and exploring the knowledges that were born in struggles and the decolonial uh, implications and geopolitical implications of of student movements in Latin America. Mm -hmm. So 
That being said, what I write about and what I think about in terms of decolonial theory is based on this interdisciplinary uh, Latin American decolonial uh, turn in social theory. And in many ways, the decolonial turn aims to counter and unsettle Eurocentric inter- interpretive frameworks and narratives mm-hmm. by thinking from and with other genealogies of thought and practice. Some of these okay. genealogies, uh, just to just to kind of finish this thought, is, is can be traced to dependency theory, anti-colonial thought, for instance, Fanon, Fanon's work, and theology and ph- philosophy of liberation, and also the knowledges, uh, once again, and practices that are born in indigenous, black, and campesino struggles in Latin America. Okay, so what I'm understanding then is decolonial theory attempts to unseat the kind of hegemonic epistemologies that the West have over yes. the world. Yes, and, and there, and there is that. yes, there's like there's these narratives and myths of Europe or the rise of Europe, if you will, that understands modernity as this endogenous process of this this uh, magic appearance of the Renaissance mm-hmm. that emerges from Europe. Uh, with no links to colonialism, with no links to exploitation and so forth. So the conditions of possibility for modernity to appear, to emerge or to be articulated globally is colonialism. And that's why this way of thinking or decolonial thought, what they do is they understand modernity and they usually couple it as modernity, coloniality and coloniality or colonialism being the darker side of of modernity. Okay. So what I would then say is, so then what, when I see kind of what's going on online, I guess, and people responding, people talking about decolonial studies, and you mentioned that the thinkers are too abstract. So in its essence, decolonial studies need to be constantly attached to the material conditions of the people. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. So when I understand that, then <laughs> I don't mean to be like so messy, but some of the stuff I see in the name of decolonial praxis then doesn't seem to be doing that. So where have we gone wrong or what's happening? Yes, that's a great observation. I think the, the importance of linking uh, decolonial thought to social movements, and there are many scholars who are doing that. The thing is that because the way, or in, in the things that I, I share on social media is, is this mm-hmm. thing regarding geopolitics of knowledge and whose knowledge is the most worth and who is heard and who is not and who's silenced and so forth. And this tends to happen, especially with decolonial feminist scholars who are actually working, not only scholars, activists, intellectuals in Latin America, who are situated and grounded in social movements. So I think the the scholars, I know uh, Walter Mignolo has been uh, critiqued substantially and so forth. But I think what people aren't aware is the scholarship and the activist intellectuals outside of the global north. So the, even the critique and the understanding usually is a pretty Anglo-centric understanding of decolonial mm. thought. So what's read usually is is that which has been published in English, and what I read usually is not only published in English. And the and the scholars who I engage with are are only writing in other languages. So that that is that that it, there is a tendency there. So we could consider, for instance, uh, the work of Ochi Curiel and Yuderkis Espinosa Miñoso, who, who are theorizing the entangled relationship of race, gender, sexuality, and colonialism from Dominican Republic, and are mm-hmm. situated in feminist and Black feminist struggles. This is something that's usually not not regarded in the global north, especially and 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 they're dialogue with other scholars in the global north. So there is this sort of erasure when we're thinking of the analytics that are used. Usually they're adopted from the global north and Anglo-centric perspective. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I, I hear that. But then again, I've not 
a pushback, but rather just maybe a clarification of, again, what's exactly taking place, because it seems like if it's connected to those in struggle, then it should mm-hmm. be a sourced where it changes like the material conditions of the people it's concerned about. Mm-hmm. But often, I guess, and I guess I understand, we, in an age of neoliberalism, everything is absolutely right. cannibalized and then, sell, and then sold back to us. Because, I mean, we, we would see things like being said, oh, okay, a part of my decolonial struggle is making an announcement of land acknowledgement before I give a speech. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm being a bit of a cynic, but I find that quite laughable. <laughs> I find that quite laughable. Okay, we acknowledge the land, but are you going to give it back? No. So then what's the point? Right. I don't care. I don't, again, I guess in the, name, in the era of just symbolism, and, and you know, wins are kind of accounted for as by how much symbolic gestures we can we get. So yeah, that's why I'm a bit confused. So again, where would you say we've gone wrong, or what's happened? Is it just, is it just the academy in the global north cannibalizing decolonial struggle, or yeah, how do you speak to that, or what would well, you say to that? That's a that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I, I think that the situation, the context in the global north, it, it, it's really difficult given the, the hegemony of neoliberalism and not only mm-hmm. speaking of political economic relations, but it's cultural expression and subjectivity and indig- individualistic way uh, of doing things. In the global South, I, I can't generalize, but in, in, in my specific context, the university is a little bit more politicized and, and, and the political ontology of it, for instance. So when, when sometimes when we critique the, the academy, uh, sometimes we also see it as in general terms, but in reality, the Latin American Autonomous University, this this model uh, first appears because of student movement. So from its institutions, very institution, it, it's very political. So student movements have always formed part of the political life of universities. So these universities are a little bit more grounded in these social struggles. So when, when people speak of decolonial thought, they're also thinking about the praxis of it and articulating their struggles mm-hmm. with student movements, with indigenous movements. In, in my research, for instance, which worked with the student movements in Honduras, and as they occupied the university for two years and, and different trimesters within a period of two years, there was wow. a participation of, of indigenous movements, of black communities in Honduras, as they also entered the university and trying to reclaim these spaces because the autonomy of the university first appears in Latin America, not because the government initiated this project, but because students reclaimed and were trying to unsettle the colonial foundations of the university. Mm. And so these collective memories, these histories continue to appear and reappear as students articulate these struggles, not only to oppose neoliberalism, not only to oppose the reconfiguration, restructuring of the curriculum and the university governance structures, but because they're trying to change society. They're trying to have this sort of social or decolonial transformation as they articulate their struggle with other social movements, especially uh, with indigenous, campesino, and black struggles in Honduras and in Latin America. So it is a little bit grounded. So when people start start thinking about uh, the decolonial possibilities, and as I do, I'm trying to theorize the, the decolonial implications of student movements. I'm doing it as they are challenging material structures of governance okay. and the implications that that has with curriculum and deciding what knowledge is the most worth, who gets to enter these spaces, and why has everyone else been excluded for so long? So these are real material and concrete struggles, as I'm theorizing, alongside yeah. students and student activists who are uh, who found themselves within a post-coup context, so a very dictatorial context. And the paradox yes. of it is that they appear within a context that oppose this sort of uh, reclaiming of autonomy and reclaiming the university as as the people's university. So these are um, the implications of 
what student movements are doing and what student movements have done in specifically in Latin America. Thank you for that. I, I get that. I get that. Very understood. Well, I, w- I have a two-part question, but depending on how you answer the first question depends what I'm going to ask for my second question. Perfect. <laughs> so the first question I have is, do you believe, and it's a bit of a curveball, but it's going to connect to it in a bit. Do you think that ideas emerge from the academy outwards or from outwards inwards? That's a, that's a great, that's a great question. <laughs> I, hope that, see, I hope you see where I'm going with this, but we'll, we'll, I'll make sense in a second. Yeah, no, it, it is, it is a great question because I've been thinking about this a lot, working on this project and I, I just yeah. uh, published an article around these uh, themes uh, related to, uh, and, and it is highly informed by, by Stuart Hall in the sense that is it the ideas that emerge within specific scientific communities or academic communities and individuals, or is it the geopolitical context that creates the conditions of possibility of thinking of alternative interpretations and alternative interpretations of reality? And so that, and that's what Stuart Hall was trying to get at, where geopolitical conjunctures are the conditions of possibility for theoretical moments to appear or to emerge. Mm-hmm. So I do believe that it is a geopolitical context. And if, if we trace back, for instance, when Jose Mariategui in the early 20th century was thinking about alternative ways of or stretching perhaps Marxism, he was doing it within a specific geopolitical context of indigenous uprisings in in Peru. When we think of dependency theory that later informed the Mm -hmm. work of many scholars around the world, thinking of of underdevelopment um, and the relationship with with development, we think about it after post-World War II context, we think of of it within a context uh, after the Cuban revolution. So we can't think of, uh, for instance, Aníbal Quijano or any dependency theory thinking in an isolated form, but they're thinking within a specific geopolitical and historical context that creates those conditions of possibility to think and theorize those conjunctures. The same thing could be said afterwards in after the fall of you know, Berlin Wall and Soviet Union, when thinkers in Latin America are, are, are trying to re-theorize and think about this context, what are the implications uh, for Latin America? And that's when Aníbal Quijano, for instance, is not a coincidence that he starts thinking about this notion of coloniality in 1991, yeah. in the early, yeah, so in, in 1991, he starts thinking about these things and other scholars as well. So it's not only a, an individual, perhaps a, the individual's given expression to some of the ideas that are floating around and within a specific geopolitical and historical context. Understood. understood. Okay, I, I totally understand that then, because why I asked that question then was we spoke about it being material conditions or, or changing the material conditions of those who are in the academy, for example, those entering these spaces or those better conditions for, or, or kind of the knowledges that are taught in these spaces. Why I said that is, it seems very academy focused. So I would like to know what decolonial study does or it seeks to do for those who are not in the academy for the wider society. Yes. So decolonial thought and other, I mean, I would say even critical theory and, and yeah. Marxist thought. So for instance, we, we could take the World Social Forum, for instance. Yeah. We could take into consideration there's certain conference, and I can only speak to to regional events and conferences that take yeah. place that, that go beyond the academy. So for instance, there's CLACSO, it's a conference that's organized in Latin America, the social sciences and so forth. But most importantly, it's linked to social movements and, and the center of attention in these spaces are social movements. How do we articulate a regional project, for instance? Yeah. And so indigenous, indigenous Black, Campesino movements, leaders, communities participate in these spaces. 
you know, I got to participate in, in the conference three or four years ago. And and with the way they initiate conferences is not the academic who speaks. For instance, it was a uh, Boaventura okay. Gisosa Santos led this this symposium, but he didn't speak very much. For the the people who were speaking were those who are situated in these indigenous black campesino communities mm. and struggles. So you know, shifting away from the academy, almost decentering the authority of the academic, and thinking of figures like Boaventura Gisosa Santos and the ethical kind of commitment he has kind of demonstrates what, I guess, the ethos that we should take when we think of being geopolitically committed to these struggles. So I participate in different events like that that are not very common in, in the global north, you know, where conferences are held in, in the Grand Hyatt or very fancy hotels and, and yeah. conventions. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what I kind of also then find interesting, and again, again, I'm very people... Who've seen? I'm going to be starting a PhD soon. It's the first time you mentioned. I, I saw that. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> so, and this is a long time. I mean, I haven't been in in Western academia for almost five, six years since my undergrad. So, so I feel like I'm. It's like my nascent stage of my scholarship. So I'm very new to a lot of stuff, and I'm still reading a lot of stuff. But what I can say, so from a periphery reading again, introductory reading, I really can't stand a lot of the post structuralists so far. <laughs> so far. Okay. And I say this because <laughs> I say this because. Again, I'm someone who tries to think about, okay, material conditions of people. Hence, that led me to the door of like dialectical materialism. So I do ask when people speak about decolonizing language and then they kind of use it as a politic. I'm also trying to understand to what aim. I'm sure I have a blind mm. spot. Or, or what, if I was to ask you to what aim, when we say decolonizing language, what, to what material result do we hope to gain mm. from that? Right, right. No, that's that's a great critique that has been made to postmodernists and obviously post-structuralist yeah. thought. It's textual analyses or textualism, if you, if you want to refer to it as that, where there is this incessant deconstruction of terms and concepts without ever pointing to the construction of a project. And yes. I, I think that's that's one of the things that attracted me the most to decolonial theory and praxis is that not, not only is it challenging and unsettling certain narratives and, and concepts as well, but it's also pointing to projects. It's, it's also mm -hmm. uh, constructive, and, and if you want to combine it, deconstructive or critical of, in many ways. And it's constructive in the sense that it is situated in social movements, in material, concrete struggles. And I think that post-structuralist thought with its incessant deconstruction doesn't do enough Exactly. And more, more than anything, it points to social movements as this sort of a modernist project. And I, I don't submit to those assumptions. I do submit to the belief that social movements, uh, indigenous, black, uh, and campesino mm -hmm. movements, for instance, are creating these conditions of possibility, uh, not only to think and do otherwise, but, yeah. but also reconstructing pretty much the, the theorizations that go around these movements. Got it. Thank you so much. Okay, switching gears just a little bit. And speaking about assumptions, I'm going to ask an assumption about you. <laughs> All right. I, I don't get it. Are you anti-Marxist, pro-Marxist? <laughs> nah, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I see a lot of your threads and I, and I, and I get, I, I'm just trying to understand your take on like dialectical materialism, for example. And I'm sorry, I know it's a curveball, but I, I don't know when I'm going to get to speak to you again. <laughs> Yeah, the dialectical way of reasoning and theorizing, I don't disregard. What happens and what get, gets a little tricky is, is thinking of historical materialism as this universal 
system of thought. And it is this uh, notion. And, and I want to I want to tell you a little story about the just the tensions that have always appeared and have always emerged in Latin America and and, and how yeah. Aníbal Quijano, for instance, begins to critique these. But well, so in, in the first communist international conference in, in Latin America it took place in 1929, right? And so it's a big deal. There were already communist parties, had direct linkages mm-hmm. to to the Communist International, but there was the Peruvian delegation with uh, Jose Mariategui, and I'm sure you've read some of the things that I, I share about mm-hmm, his thought. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, founded the Socialist Party in Peru without any links to the Communist International. He was more mm-hmm. thinking about the just the, so, the just the long durée of socialism that, that had existed in in Peru or or pre or pre pre colonial times, if you will. So he's thinking about socialism in in in, in other terms. So he he goes to this conference. And presents the centrality of racial analysis within the context wow. of Peru uh, in a context, in a conference that was looking at historical materialism and class-based analysis as a universal way of analyzing mm-hmm. the world and determining the reality of uh, Peru, Argentina, and any other context. We had, you know, people had to analyze it through this universal perspective and orthodox sort of Marxism. So the Peruvian delegation begins with the presentation of pointing to the centrality of race, racial dynamics, the way that race is, uh, is used for imperialist mm. ways of, of, of uh, the, the language he used was penetrating Latin America by co-opting uh, the bourgeois or the white yeah. uh, bourgeoisie. So this is one of the critiques that, that Aníbal Quijano also makes with uh, structuralist thought, especially Althusser's way of thinking and the way that it was consumed in Latin America after dependency theory so dependency theory creates this, it is without a doubt informed by Marxism, and it is Marxist in many ways, but it, it starts analyzing the colonial implications and the colonial relationships with capitalism and in the way that it structures what, what Aníbal Quijano and others called the historical structural heterogeneity, where, where it's not only the structuralist or external power that then imposes on on regions, but there's also co-optation, there's also local elite, there's also this whiteness and, um, and, and coloniality embedded within mm. our societies that Marxist analyses and structuralist analysis were not actually doing. Um, so this is the major critique that's done uh, by Quijano, where he says dependency theory was doing really great things. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's this structuralist kind of fad that appears through Althusser's writing and, and how it's consumed in Latin America. So what a modernist theory, a modernization theory couldn't do to kind of unsettle and counter dependency theory, this kind of like this original way of thinking of, of capitalism and colonialism. Interestingly enough, the one that did counter was a structuralist thought. So it was like a leftist discourse against another leftist discourse <laughs> that kind of then unsettled it and kind of invalidated it in many ways. So that is one yeah. of the critiques that's that's important to make where we think of uh, these universalist notions of uh, historical materialism to understand reality. So rather than thinking of, so for instance, when we think of uh, Jose Mariategui, he, he his arguments were rather than thinking of Marxist theory to then understand uh, the realities or specificities of a region, we think from the specificities of the region to think of Marxism and to stretch Marxism. Okay, wow. to, so it's, there is this kind of inversion of, of things when we think about Marxism. And I think that's what Fanon was, was trying to do as well. I was going to ask, I mentioned a couple of times, when you hear the phrase like stretch Marxism, I know you mentioned a bit of it. What else do you think that includes or encompasses? I know Fanon speaks about stretching Marxism to fit the colonial context. 
Yeah, it's I think it's it's not only considering the materialist or political economic implications of it. I think that one of the things that happened if we think of the decolonization as only this uh, this sort of political or economic decolonization. I think that's where we went wrong in mm. in the sense that when we stretch Marxism, we have to stretch it beyond just the political economic perspective. So when decolonization occurred, there's this hasty kind of decolonization that Fanon was also speaking of, where formal political decolonization, if you will, was enough. And, and as we know now, that 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 is not the case. Yeah. So it is important to stretch Marxism in a sense, stretch it toward also the symbolic implications and that dialectical relationship between the symbolic or epistemic with the material. So how does a symbolic justify these material forms of exploitation and colonial domination? And so I, I think we could conceive of stretching Marxism in those terms. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I'll, I guess to conclude, or just maybe a final thought again, I know I would like to hear more about how do we kind of pry decolonial studies from the realm of abstraction. That's another, not a critique of decolonial studies, but again, how it's almost used in public. I know I've mentioned this before, but again, just how it's used, I'm just a bit... So let, let me throw a curveball. Let me, let me ask you a question about mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Removing statues, for example, what do you think as a politic? The statues that commemorate racist figures or slave traders, for example. Yeah, yeah, the uh, roads must, must fall kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. Must fall. I, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think from its emergence, it was. I think it was a symbolic. Yeah, there were symbolic gestures that did not translate to material to the material. So I think that's one of the the issues, right? How do we do both? Um, and it's hard to only situate our struggles within the academy, and I think that's that's the major problems when we talk about yeah. decolonizing the curriculum decolonizing well we could decolonize everything it seems like without considering the real yeah land acknowledgements you mentioned but statues do monuments do have a meaning of and have implications of of power right when we when we keep monuments intact and so forth but if the move if a movement just stays on that plane and stays on that level and doesn't translate that to other projects and that's a big mistake so let me let me relate that back to to the student movements, for instance, that I've mm-hmm. worked with. And, and I've constantly said you can't decolonize, for instance, the curriculum without decolonizing governance structures. Yes. So when student movements, for instance, are, I can't speak to the Rose Must Fall movement as much as I don't specialize in that, but the student movements who, who I've worked with, what they're doing is reclaiming governance structure, shared governance, where they have equal decision-making power in all governance structures of the university. Since autonomy was reclaimed by them in the early 20th century, uh, later stripped away through neoliberal restructuring of the university and so forth. So as, as student movements reemerge in the 21st century, they're not only saying, no, we have to change our way of thinking, we have to change the curriculum and so forth. What they're saying, no, we have to reclaim the, the power structures of the university and what the university actually does to legitimate structures outside and beyond its walls. So that's something that they're doing, not something that's just remains within the walls of the university yes. that doesn't remain within this sort of just discussions of, of symbolic dimension or, or epistemic dimension, even though that's that's critical, that's important. They're, they're discussing the radical demo- democratization of the university, if you will, and, and in many ways, the decolonization of the university in material terms, not necessarily just the curriculum, but the governance. Who gets to decide what in an in institution mm-hmm. that's foundational to colonialism? 
So th- that's a little bit different than just the symbolic gestures yes. that has occurred in other movements. So I think that's, I have that perspective and I ke- always keep that in mind when I'm thinking about what decolonial theory and what decolonial praxis actually means um, on the ground. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I mean, that was just a very kind of brief introduction and I, I actually learned so much. So thank you once again, Hyro. Like I learned a lot. I hope that was okay. Yeah. I'm going to leave um, Hyro's socials in the, in the description of the episode. Please follow him and check out his fire threads. Until next time, people, please like, comment, subscribe, listen to Mom of the Tom, the Malcolm Effect, Spotify, Apple Music and other streaming platforms. Until later, take care.